This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Good day to you and welcome to this edition of America Change Forever. I'm Jeff Begays. We have a lot to talk about this week. Uh, the Biden administration, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, reeling after last week's election results, a lot of people talking about that as the administration faces more challenges. For example, what's going on at the border. The infighting has fueled paralysis and it has essentially in many ways forced the administration to rely on the same policies that the Trump administration relied on to manage migration flows that allows border officials to expel families and adults without allowing them to see an immigration judge. There are some concerns there, whether you're on the left or on the right. So you'll want to listen to what we have on that topic. Also, we're going to talk about inflation. This is the, the cost of the goods and services that you confront every day. They're rising. Really disturbing number coming out this week on how the price of these goods have been rising. We're going to talk to an expert on that. Jill Schlesinger will be here. And, you know, I don't think that this is a problem that can be solved in the short term. It can ease a little bit. Sure, there are some things that can be done. But overall, this is about time. And this is also about the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is independent and should be independent, by the way, from the administration. And then we're going to get into the travel season. What is it going to be like to go to grandma's house or grandpa's house? Don't want to leave grandpa out at Thanksgiving. Are people going to be flying? Are they going to be driving? Are they going to be taking the train? And can you expect long lines? So the idea of racing out to the airport or getting in your car on that Wednesday before Thanksgiving is also somewhat absurd because we can, since we can work from anywhere, why not leave a week early for Thanksgiving? Because otherwise you're going to be in the remake of the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. It's, it's not going to be a pretty picture. We're going to have Peter Greenberg. He's, he's an expert on that issue. See, we get all the best people to talk about all of these very important subjects. But we're going to begin with the prices of goods and services. They're going up. You're probably wondering what that means. That means inflation. You might be wondering, well, what exactly does that mean? Well, it's the kind of thing that really hits you in the pocketbook every day when you go to the grocery store. Uh, but I'm not the expert at this. That's why I wanted to bring in Jill Schlesinger, who is a business analyst for CBS News and also writes the syndicated column, Jill on Money. Jill, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you. All right. So the numbers that we got this week, they aren't good. Prices rose 6.2% in October compared with a year ago, the largest annual increase in about 30 years. What does that mean? 
Well, it means the cost of everything from gas at the pumps, food in the grocery store, uh, the cost of shelter, the cost of a vehicle, the cost of furniture, appliances, pretty much across the board, things cost more. So inflation is just the rate of change. And as you noted in the introduction, that that rate of change um, for this past month was the highest annual amount since uh, the eve of the Gulf War in the fall of 1990. So a 6.2% increase from a year ago overall. It's just a very hot reading. And pretty much every subcategory just showed lots of price increases. Well, so what is driving these price increases? Is it this supply chain problem? Well, let, you know, listen, there's no single culprit here. Um, so we'll talk about the supply chain issues. They're a little more complicated. You know, going back a bunch of years, um, and I'm saying even 10 years, there were some, there have always been some concerns that the global supply chain was relying on too few locations for manufacturing. And obviously that started to become exacerbated with the trade conflicts from, you know, four or five years ago. And now when COVID hit, just think about this, factories from China to South Korea to Germany were just shut down or forced to reduce their production because workers were sick or the economy was in lockdown locally. And so when you think about that, all those places did not simultaneously close down and open up. There were these staggered openings and closings and shipping companies cut their schedules and shipping containers ended up in the wrong places. Even, you know, you would throw climate change in there because we have had droughts and storms, but the scarcity of all these products has caused prices to go higher. And frankly, the labor shortages have also contributed to this as people just simply have not been back to work in big numbers yet. So that's the supply side, which is really bottlenecked, kind of gummed up. On the demand side, well, you know, we all as a sort of a nation uh, during lockdown actually were able to save a lot of money and after 20 months of the pandemic and armed with all the excess savings, more than $2 trillion worth, uh, consumers have just been chasing goods, spending a lot. And that has really brought the supply and the demand, both sort of working together, has driven prices at the highest pace in more than three so decades. So people are spending, you said they're they're spending a lot, unless I missed something there. They're, they're, so they're spending... They have the money to spend, but it's just the, you know, the goods aren't available. The prices are going up. So they're using more of their resources, so to speak, to get what they want. Yeah. I mean, look, we got a reading on the labor market last week came out and um, we found out that in October, wages were up pretty briskly, 4.9% from a year ago. But if inflation is running at 6.2%, you can do the math pretty easily and see that the especially lower wage worker may be falling behind. And yet many people are still spending. Consumers are still actually spending money. What they're doing is they're eating into their savings to do so. Now they've got a little bit of leeway because a lot of people had higher savings than they had carried in a long time. And so they're able to eat into that savings. But at some point this catches up. And I think that this is important to remember that inflation is is like a regressive tax, meaning that 
it hits low-wage households much harder than higher-income households because lower-wage households spend the majority of their pay on commuting costs or you know their own car or just public transportation, grocery bills, uh, rents, and that eats into their total income. So this is something that's really important that we keep an eye on. I'm sure the Federal Reserve is quite concerned about the, the pace of inflation right now. Remember when George H. Walker Bush, I, I think it was George H. Walker Bush, was in a supermarket and somebody asked him the price of a gallon of milk and he didn't know. Um, and we're going to have to fact check that, but I, I believe it was George H. Walker Bush. And he really took a hit when he seemed out of touch, a political hit, when he seemed out of touch with what average Americans are going through. And not that you're a political analyst, but I'm sure you're you're keeping track of how the Biden administration responds to this kind of thing. But there's some real dangers here for this administration if they don't confront this. Well, there's not much they can do. So let's be clear about that. Um, the public is going. There isn't much they can do. No. Well, what about what about this? You know, ease the supply chain problem. What can they do? These are these supply chain issues are bigger than an administration. And um, I think sure, opening up a port is fine, and twenty four hours of port. But you know, the the Biden administration cannot fix what is broken in the supply chain in the near term. It just it's, it will not happen fast enough. And that means that you're going to have a public that's quite angry. And, you know, some in the public are not going to they're going to be worried about that. And it's going to be cold comfort to say, well, the stock market's up 25 percent this year. Aren't you happy when, you know, 45 percent of the country doesn't own a stock Um, or housing prices are have soared. And, you know, when you look at the number of people who own homes and maybe a lot of people don't own homes. So, you know, the asset increases and the inflation on that side is not going to make the vast majority of people feel better. And, you know, I don't think that this is a problem that can be solved in the short term. It can ease a little bit. Sure, there are some things that can be done. But overall, this is about time. And this is also about the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is independent and should be independent, by the way, from the administration. So if anybody thinks that Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, doesn't understand that there's inflation right now, of course he does. Of course he does. The question really is, Will the Fed stick to its guns and say, we believe inflation is temporary in nature, maybe it'll last another six months, but we're convinced that that as these issues get resolved, that it is more important that we leave interest rates low while the economy continues to heal, while we get millions of people back in, in, the, in jobs, and they will not change their monetary policy soon, any sooner. We'll see about that. That's what they've said so far. But do I think this is a uh, bad timing for uh, the the Biden administration? Sure, but presidents suffer from bad timing all the time, and they usually get credit for things that are out of their control, and they also get blamed for things that are out of their control. <laughs> that is so right. One of the pitfalls of that job, just one. But this is why our fearless leader at CBS Radio, Greg Swagler, called this show "America Change Forever." You know, at the top of our interview, you, you talked about the pandemic and how it caused this problem and that problem. And it's tr- it's really remarkable how many issues we are dealing with because of this pandemic. 
And even though things are, you know, we're sort of emerging from it, sometimes it feels like we are, other times it feels like we aren't. You, you just see the cascading impact uh, as it relates to the economy, uh, as it relates to the health of, of Americans. Um, but really, the economy has had to adjust to this pandemic and evolve because of this pandemic. And you know what? It's going to continue to, to evolve. And I think there are going to be unintended um, consequences from every action or inaction taken. So what do I mean by that? Well, look, the the stimulus plans that were enacted helped millions of Americans and allowed the economy overall to recover much, much faster than it would have had there not been stimulus. And it probably prevented a ton of suffering. But in doing so, in doling out this money, there is no doubt that there has been price inflation that has been created. Now, I'm not saying that that shouldn't have been done, but it is something that was probably uh, understandable to what, what was going on, but that it was not the most important thing. And so the most important thing was make sure that we help families that are suffering amid the pandemic, get money into their pockets. Maybe it was more than they needed. Maybe it wasn't. We, you know, there's going to be a lot of analysis done to recount this period. But the Congress under the Trump administration and under the Biden administration made the best choice they thought they had. They played the hand that they thought was going to be most helpful to Americans. Unfortunately, that created inflation. Unfortunately, having all that excess savings caused a lot of Americans to say, wait a minute, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? Is this something that's, is this pandemic changed me? And when we talk about being changed forever, I, I, I worry about the word forever. Let me just say that, Craig Swagler, I love you. But that word is not one that I ever live and die by. <laughs> okay. Um, but changed is real. So that means that more people are contemplating what their lives are going to be like after the pandemic. They're questioning choices they may have made before the pandemic. And at the end of the day, that's going to shake out in ways that are just not understandable. And maybe people aren't going to go back to low-wage jobs. Isn't that a good thing, though, how – and I've done it in my own life. You know, I don't know, Jill, if, if you've sort of reevaluated things. But it, in, in a way, it slowed the world down. And I think if you're looking for a silver lining with this pandemic, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that people are sort of reevaluating what's important to them has turned out to be a good thing. I Listen, I'm all for it. You know, I host two podcasts. They are personal finance podcasts. I host a radio show that is a personal finance uh, radio show. I go on the air. I talk about these issues because I think that people are done chasing money for the sake of chasing money. They are finally coming to the conclusion that Maybe the job that I had that required me to be have my face over a friolator for eight hours is not the best job for me. And even if I wanted to be a great chef, maybe it was it's more important that I take a high higher paid job that's more reliable with benefits where maybe I'm not pursuing my passion, but it allows me to be with my family on a consistent basis. Maybe that's more important to me. And maybe this two-income family that was struggling all along the way found, hey, you know what? 
we can actually live on one salary. We may not be able to spend as freely, but we're happier as a result. I think those are great conversations to have. But I do think from the economic analysis of where we stand right now, that I think if we we really have to be honest with ourselves and say, if we went back to March of 2020, April of 2020, and I told you the biggest problem we had was inflation, not that we had 10 million people out of work, you would have said, I'll take that trade all day long. So, you know, the economy is in transition and we will land in a different place. The How quickly we get there, that is unknowable right now. I wonder if you know or can predict what the holiday shopping season will bring. Around this time of year, we always we always sort of look at hiring around the holidays and whether stores are beefing up their staff ahead of what they hope is a rush of shoppers. What do you think is going to happen this year, Jill? There's a lot of holiday hiring going on um, at the big players, right? So if you look at it in Amazon or you look at a, at a Macy's, a big department store chain, or you look at uh, Walmart, you know, they, they're all hiring UPS um, I think that, the, again, there is so much pent-up demand and there are so many folks like us talking about, hey, you may not get the exact item you want or don't be shopping for sales this time around. I think that there is going to be quite a bit of spending that goes on in this fourth quarter in this retail season. And, you know, look, remember, we had this other aspect of the of the whole pandemic process, which is the Delta variant. So we had like a, a start-stop kind of moment where you know, if you're the kind of person like I am, an old aging athlete, and you have to run a wind sprint, you go out fast, you come back, you rest, you go out fast, you come back, you rest, right? Um, the, the, the economy sort of did that. We went out fast, and then the Delta variant hit, and we had to actually, everyone had to sit back and not do something. And now, after the third quarter, where we saw growth slow to a 2% annualized pace, I think people are ready to go out and sprint again and spend some money. So I do think that this should be a uh, a good holiday season. I think that many Americans are clear they're not going to get exactly what they want. Jeff, I just want you to know that because I can't get you exactly what you want, I'm giving you a leftover gourd from Halloween. Is that okay? That's about all we're going to get. You know what? It's the thought that counts. It is the thought that counts. But I think that people also are sort of, ready to spend. They're not going to spend necessarily going nutty. Hey, listen, maybe this means if we look at this inflation report, getting back to inflation, maybe you say to yourself, usually when I am doing my, let's just say my holiday dinner, my New Year's Eve dinner, usually what I do is I get a big steak for everyone. And now I'm looking at the numbers and I say, hmm, steak prices are up 24% from a year ago. Maybe, maybe I'll actually, uh, oh, maybe I'll go with turkey after all, because turkey, even though we just had it for Thanksgiving, was up only 1.7% from a year ago. So do I think that there are going to be some people who make those kinds of choices? Sure. But do I think that people are going to say, I want to spend some money, haven't spent money in a while, I'm ready to get going, I want to travel, I want to see my family, all those things I do think will propel the holiday season. Well, that's good to hear, because we're probably going to, we're probably going to have you back on and let's see how your prediction turned out. Oh, I hate that this is on tape. Yeah, we got we got you on the record. I want to focus this segment 
on the issues at the border. Now, no matter where you stand on immigration issues, whether you're concerned about the treatment of people at the border, we're just coming across trying to achieve that American dream. And yeah, for, for a lot of people across the globe, that dream still exists. Or perhaps you're on the other side and you're concerned about people, people crossing, you're concerned about people crossing the border illegally. So no, no matter where you stand on this issue, uh, you should be concerned about what's going on there now. And to, to discuss this issue at the border, let's bring in Camilo Montoya Galvez, who covers DHS for CBS News, is one of the, the best reporters there is covering immigration. Camilo, thanks for your time. It's very generous. Thank you, Jeff. So let's talk about what's going on at the border, because I think, you know, since former President Trump left office, uh, there isn't as much coverage uh, that people see day to day on what's happening at the border. And right now we're hearing, uh, and you were the first to, to really talk about this in an article you wrote about the challenges that the Biden administration is facing at the border and the disagreements within the White House on how to confront these challenges uh, on the border. So so what are you hearing? Sure. So, Jeff, I think there are some pretty stark disagreements within the Biden administration itself over the future of border policy. And it is the same type of debate that you mentioned that we are having as a country among the general public. We have some of President Biden's appointees who support tougher and traditional deterrence measures to deter people from coming here to the U.S.-Mexico border, policies like increased deportations, uh, the use of a public health law invoked by the Trump administration known as Title 42 to expel people without allowing them to seek asylum. But you also have some administration officials, Jeff, who support measures that expand access to the asylum system and that focus on speeding up the processing of migrants and asylum petitioners as opposed to deterring them from coming here in the first place. And while there are a lot of disagreements on policy, everyone I spoke to, I spoke to several Biden appointees, they all agreed that the infighting has fueled paralysis, that it has obstructed the administration's desired policy goals, and that it has essentially in many ways forced the administration to rely on the same policies that the Trump administration relied on to manage migration flows, including this Title 42 policy that allows border officials, again, to expel families and adults without allowing them to see an immigration judge. Well, so, you know, the fact that people are accusing the Biden administration of using some of the same policies that the Trump administration did poses political problems for this president. Uh, and certainly as it relates to the far left wing of the Democratic Party, they, they're they're not happy with what they're seeing at the border and, and the treatment and, and the fact that some of these policies are still being enforced. Yeah, no, that's such a critical question, Jeff, because the administration is facing strong criticism over its border policy from 
progressives on the left, but also from Republican lawmakers on the right. Progressives accused the administration of relying on these Trump-era deterrence policies and are not moving quickly enough to undo some of the damage that they believe the Trump administration caused to the U.S. immigration system. And on the other hand, you have Republican lawmakers who are accusing the Biden administration of fueling this sharp increase in migration through what they see as lax border enforcement policies. So the administration is in this very precarious situation where it is receiving strong criticism from both sides. And, you know, the answers to uh, that criticism tend to be nuanced, right? You have on one hand, the administration relying on policies like Title 42, which were implemented under President Trump, but they have also made a lot of exemptions to the Title 42 policy. So for example, Jeff, under the Trump administration, most migrants were being expelled under Title 42, including unaccompanied children, but the Biden administration exempted unaccompanied children from this policy. It is also expelling a smaller percentage of families uh, with children using this policy. Most of the adults are still being expelled, but most families and all unaccompanied children are being processed under regular immigration law, and they're allowed to to seek asylum and to see a judge um, and to continue their proceedings here in the U.S. So, you know, they're facing all types of criticisms, and they're trying just to balance uh, all of this incoming fire that they're really getting from uh, progressives and conservatives, while at the same time trying to decipher what their own policy vision is. Yeah, well, this is why you are so busy covering these stories day to day, because this is a really, um, you know, this is a tough area for the Biden administration to navigate. It's almost like a lose-lose no matter what they do. Yeah, it's an incredibly polarizing issue, uh, because it's an issue, Jeff, that has to do with human beings, with you know, notions of belonging, of not belonging, of being welcomed, of not being welcomed. It also has to do with foreign policy, economics, nationalism, uh, and politics. And there are no easy solutions, right? Um, I spoke to Cecilia Munoz for the story you referenced. She was the top immigration advisor to former President Barack Obama. And she said she understood some of the frustration among progressive activists, but she noted that all of the options that the U.S. government has to respond to this large number of migrants coming to the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, whether that is detaining them in detention centers, uh, making them wait in Mexico while their cases are adjudicated, rapidly expelling them without a chance to seek asylum, or releasing them into the U.S., they all have political and humanitarian consequences. All these options are not great. Uh, so the policy choices that the administration has are limited, but they're also, they also come with a, a lot of political and humanitarian baggage, if you uh, could say that. So uh, yes, it is a tough issue. Um, and what I found really interesting, Jeff, is that in all of my conversations with President Biden's appointees, uh, moderates and progressives alike, they all seem to agree that the ideal border policy, Jeff, would be one in which economic migrants who don't qualify for asylum are rapidly deported, especially the adults, and asylum seekers who are fleeing persecution are screened for U.S. protection at campus-like processing centers instead of detention centers. But there are no signs, Jeff, that that system will be implemented anytime soon. Mm, well, what not there a blueprint 
from the Obiden from the Obiden yeah. administration. Um, <laughs> there's some people probably heard that. Like well, <laughs> that's what the Biden administration is is Obama administration number two. But but yeah, didn't you know people called. President Obama, the deporter in chief, and you know immigration wasn't an issue that was in the headlines as as much as it is, as it is now, but perhaps that was because he was you know having s- some success in in terms of diffusing immigration as an issue so what isn't there a blueprint there for President Biden? I think so, but I think what has changed most significantly since the Obama administration is where the progressive advocacy community stands on these issues. Because of the way that the Trump administration utilized some of these enforcement tools like the Remain in Mexico policy, the family separation saga, and the increased deportations, uh, and just policies that were widely viewed as draconian and harsh on immigrants and asylum seekers, the progressive community has moved toward adopting and supporting policies that are not supported by what you would call mainstream Democrats, uh, President Biden himself, uh, and more moderate officials in the administration. So many of the moderate officials who whom I spoke to said that the progressive community, the advocacy community, has not made things easy on the, on the administration by making what they see as unreasonable demands uh, to implement policies where all migrants are allowed to seek asylum and they are allowed to, to stay here in the U.S. pending the adjudication of their cases. And the official said that that is just untenable, that that will not only be logistically impossible right now, especially because of the pandemic, but it will also increase and intensify the already intense political pressure that the administration is facing on this issue, mainly from Republicans and also some moderate Democrats, including those who represent border districts. Um, So I think that's the biggest difference, Jeff, uh, how far apart the advocacy community is um, with the Biden administration at this point on border policy. All right. Well, it really bears watching because there is a lot going on uh, along the border, and it, it's going to be an issue as we get closer to the midterm elections in 2022. Camilo Montoya Galvez, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jeff. So, I wanted to talk to travel expert, and that's really an understatement because. Peter Greenberg, the reason why I like having him on the program is because he is really the best at what he does. And part of that is because of the research that he does, exhaustive research. I mean, he really immerses himself in travel. Don't feel sorry for him because, yeah, this is work for him, but it's really... You know, it's the kind of dream job that most of us would love to have because, Peter, where are you right now? You're, you know what? I don't even know why I'm even talking to you with an introduction like that. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to set you up. Uh, you did. You did. I'm actually in Seville in Spain. I'm here for uh, 
to do my radio show for CBS and then off to the Canary Islands to do another one. Uh, I've been traveling through Europe almost one, uh, one country per day, checking out how the European Union has opened to fully vaccinated Americans and what's going on over here at the very moment that the United States has finally opened after nearly 20 months to fully vaccinated people from 33 different countries now coming to the United States. I just want to know when are, you know, when is CBS going to realize this racket that you got going on? I mean, this is incredible. I am shocked. Well, look, here's the deal. Travel is the largest industry in the world. People don't know that. It employs one out of every 10 jobs. Before the pandemic, it was one out of every five new jobs. It's front page news. And and we've seen that for the last 20 months. People are realizing what happens when you don't have it. The economic impact, the emotional impact. Uh, people reconsidering their own lot in life because they're not traveling. Uh, their own jobs, their own passion, their own choice of where they're going to live, their own cost of living. All this has happened uh, it, it, relatable to travel in the last 20 months. And it represents quantum change and a different way that we are going to live our lives and where we're going to go. Yeah, and all joking aside, it is nice to see that people are traveling again. I fly every so often and I see, you know, more and more people filling these seats. And so what can we expect going through this holiday season? Is it our prices going to rise again? Is it going to be travel nightmares everywhere or things going to kind of? You know, get back to, well, I guess, you know, I don't really want to say get back to normal, but things are getting back to what it was pre-pandemic. Is that accurate? We're about 6% under the number of travelers that we had at this period of time back in 2019, but it's actually worse than that because you can't call it holiday travel anymore. There's no seasonality left. The people who are coming to the United States now from overseas have been waiting 20 months to do VFR traffic, right? Visit friends and relatives. They're not waiting for summer. They're coming now. And if you look back historically, the holiday season is really four days in November and maybe eight days in December. What we're seeing now are planes full, hotels getting full, prices rising between now and March with no exception. So what normally would be a quiet time of the year with the exception of those two small holiday periods is now getting a little crazy. And if you combine that, or I should say, compound that with long-standing staffing issues, shortages, uh, people not showing up at work, hotels not even having housekeeping staffs in some places. Uh, you're dealing with a system that, while it would love to handle it, it physically can't. That's why the planes are full. That's why the lines are longer at the airports. That's why hotels can't really operate above 35% capacity because they literally don't have the staff to do it. And from a fair point of view, Airfares are rising right now between 3 and 5% per day, and that's compounded. And that's due in no small part to the fact that those 33 countries are now flying to the United States. The bookings, Jeff, for flights to the United States online from those 33 countries are up 750%. Oh, my. That is a big number. I was never good in my economics classes. I you know, I tend to doze off, but what I did understand is supply and demand. So demand is up. Are there any tips you can offer people in terms of finding the best deals? 
Well, before we even get to finding the best deals, it's finding a plane that's actually going to operate. Uh, we saw the meltdown that happened two months ago at, at uh, Spirit, then again at Southwest, and most recently at American. And let's take us through that, because during the pandemic, when all these airlines were getting a huge amount of federal aid, part of that aid was conditioned on the, on the premise that the airlines could not lay anybody off or fire anybody. And they kept to that promise. However, the airlines didn't stop encouraging their employees to take early buyouts and packages, and a lot of their employees did. So that when travel came roaring back this summer, the airlines were not prepared at all for those numbers. Plus, what did the airlines do? In some cases, they doubled and tripled down their schedules to fly to 30 or 40 new routes that they'd never flown before. So they were already stretched thin, then they got thinner. And that's when you saw all those meltdowns happen. And even though the airlines are now trying to bring back staff, you can't just kick the tires and get back in the cockpit. It requires recurrent training for both flight attendants and pilots. And that takes a lot of time. You multiply that by the number of pilots and flight attendants that are short, by the number of flights they're supposed to be taking, and now you see the problem that we have. Now, having said that, Jeff, if you want to talk about tips on getting a flight that's actually going to operate, here's what you do. And some of it goes back to pre-pandemic advice. Take the first flight of the day and make sure, and there are ways to do this, that the actual aircraft that's assigned to your flight actually overnighted at the airport that you're flying from the night before, because that presumes the crew is available too. Then so many of us take connecting flights, and that's where things get a little hinky, because most people make the mistake, and I call it a mistake, of reserving their flights online. They don't have a conversation. They're just motivated by fare. And they don't see things like connect time between flights. They don't see things like resort fees and hotels that are not always disclosed, and a number of other things. But the connect time is key here. I've actually seen connect times online as low as 37 minutes between flights. That's not just absurd, that's suicidal. So what you need to do, if you're going to book online, or even through a travel agent, or through the airline directly, give yourself at least 90 minutes between connecting flights. Because if you don't, and that first flight is late, and you miss that second flight, even if the airline wants to be nice and put you on their next available flight, they don't have another available flight because that's already full, and you're sitting in that rocking chair in Charlotte for the next two days. So give yourself at least a 90-minute connect time. And that also applies to your bags. Otherwise, they're not going to get there. And that's one of the things you have to do, whether we're in a pandemic or not. But now you compound it with the staffing shortages and the schedule malfunctions it's a no-brainer. You are so thorough, and I really appreciate that. And I know, you know, you, you've given us some good tips to, to follow. Taking taking the earliest flight, that's something that I always try to do because you're right. I mean, you, you assume that the crew is ready to go, the plane is on the tarmac, and you're good. So for those people who are planning on driving to grandma or grandpa's house, according to AAA, for Thanksgiving travel, there is expected to be a rebound to near pre-pandemic levels with 53 million Americans expected to travel for the holiday. That's a 13% increase from last year, but you probably already know those numbers, Peter. Well, I do, but let me interpret them for you because this year is different for another reason. And that is we've been spending the last 20 months working remotely, living remotely, learning remotely. Very few of us are going into a physical office. so. The idea of racing out to the airport or getting in your car on that Wednesday before Thanksgiving 
is also somewhat absurd because we can, since we can work from anywhere, why not leave a week early for Thanksgiving? Because otherwise you're going to be in the remake of the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. It's, it's not going to be a pretty picture. The other thing I would suggest, and I would have given you this advice before the pandemic, but I'll do it again now, is the last time I looked, I think you can freeze turkey. Go the week after Thanksgiving and celebrate with your relatives. No one's going to be docked from work because you can work from anywhere. Because if you take a look at the airfares, on the Tuesday following Thanksgiving, the airfares plummet. That's known as the dead week. That's the week where everybody's recovering from that dysfunctional family get-together known as Thanksgiving. Or it's the week after New Year's when people are just recovering. Those are the two dead weeks every year, and this year is no different. But with airfares rising the way they are, uh, it's, it's a triple whammy. Gas prices in some states, I mean, look, I filled up my, my tank in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago. That was painful. But people are not really affected by that. They're going to fill up their tank, even though there's pain at the pump with those prices. But they don't want to be stuck in traffic. And then, of course, in the old days, it was the, you know, getting stuck at the mall on Black Friday. So for me, it's a no-brainer. Go a week before. You should. You don't want to. You do not want to give yourself that abuse because it's 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 there. It's waiting for you. Those gas prices. Well, they are a bit disturbing. I I have chosen the EV route, electrical vehicle route, and and that that is nice. But every now and then, you know, I drive a rental car and I have to fill up with gas, and I see those prices at you know four dollars a gallon in some parts of the country. And I'm just wondering, wow, that is so high. Uh, in your experience, I mean, have you have you seen consistently high numbers like this for this extended period of time? This is a long one because, remember, it's a triple whammy. It's a perfect storm of the supply chain problem, of demand, and then, of course, people feeling they have to go. One little tip about rental cars, and that is, I always prepay for the gas when I rent the car and you make sure you tick off that box because if you don't, you'll have, you'll have happened to you what they tried to do to me until I reminded them that I had ticked off the box is when I returned the car, they charged me $179 to refuel the car. They charged me $11 a gallon. That is crazy. Right. Prepay for the gas or return it with a full tank of gas. Never. I hate to use the N-word, but I'm going to do it now. Never allow them to refuel the car uh, with the prices that they're going to charge. That's good advice. What about Amtrak? There are a lot of people on the East Coast, especially, who who use it quite a bit. Are we? What kind of service are we seeing these days on the trains? Well, they're starting to bring back their long-haul service with more frequency. Of course, in the Northeast Corridor, they've, pulled that, they, they've really increased that as well. Amtrak's had an unbelievably good year, uh, and they've done a good job in terms of social distancing. They baked it into every one of those cars, and you better get a reservation because they're going to be full. People realize they really are a good alternative to getting stuck on traffic in the car, and the rates aren't that bad. Uh, I love their long-haul trains, but during the pandemic, they hardly had any. A lot of it was substituted with some bus service, which is never fun, but they're starting to bring them back. And that's a good thing. Peter Greenberg, really appreciate your time. Always so thorough. And good luck in your travels. 
I will. I'll try to call you next week from like New Jersey to make you feel better. That would okay. Be nice. That way I can rub it in. <laughs> but we love New Jersey. Uh, me too. <laughs> okay. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Begay's CBS, where you can send program ideas. What do you want us to look into? And follow me on Instagram at Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.